to Covenant College. I hear we have some visitors here for Family Weekend. Thank you for being with us. We are delighted you are here. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we come, we have some time. Would you help us to reconsider the gift of time and of your presence with us in the midst of it? Do something subtle and something profound in us by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to actually <clears throat> talk about three things. We're going to spend a lot of time on the first. We're going to talk about clocks. Interesting. We're going to talk about stress, and we're going to talk about divine presence. Clocks, stress, and divine presence. How are you guys doing? I mean, when someone asks, how are you doing around here, or just about anywhere, in the Western world and in America, we often say, well, I'm actually pretty stressed. I'm just so busy. But sometimes we change the words if you listen. Maybe you can feel these words as I say them to you. Buried. I'm buried. I'm overwhelmed. I'm crushed. I'm stretched. Notice how those words are something being done to us where we're receiving them. And part of what I want to explore very slowly with you this morning is why is it that we feel so busy, so stressed out, and so anxious? And in order to start to understand this, and then maybe at the end to start to help you think about it as a Christian, we need to start spending time thinking about clocks and time. Augustine, the early church father Augustine one time said what is time I know as long as I don't have to tell you right as soon as you try and you know talk about what time is it's very elusive right I look at my watch and I tell you what time it is but I don't know if you've ever even considered it what are you actually doing when you do that you may or may not realize this but people have not always viewed time the same now, in a sense, telling time is no new thing. People have always drawn from the, from the sun and the stars and the moon. For millennia, people have used different temporal scales. But different cultures and different historical moments have understood and organized time in different ways. For example, ancient Israel would measure a day from morning to morning, not midnight to midnight. They would divide the day into morning and midday and the setting of the sun and dawn. But you may not know it, they also divided the day even more than that. They would talk about the breeze before sunrise, the evening breeze, or the hottest time of the day. What I want you to understand is in that ancient context, embodiment in the material world your body and your embodiment is what molded our relation to time. What humans saw, what they experienced, what they felt, it governed how they would go through their days. And in this way, it's what scholars would call contextual time. The context is what would shape your understanding of time. 
This is why I, we still use this language. We talk about some days are longer than other days, right? Some hours, see if I can get an amen for this, some hours are better for napping than for working, right? <laughs> right? Okay. But some, sometimes they're better for harvest or for festivals or for feasts. Some, some periods like childbirth are a season to be treated than a time of war. But you see, time necessarily related to one's physical environment and community dynamics. And throughout history, people did have always developed different technologies to try and understand time. There were sundials and early water clocks. But in all of these things, your daily experience of time was shaped by your environment. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip a bunch of history and jump to the 13th century. In the 13th century, you start to have mechanical public clocks show up. And as one medieval scholar says, it, you do have these mechanical clocks starting to show up, but he said, the average person, hours and minutes were irrelevant. Can you imagine that? The idea of hours and minutes were irrelevant. What guided people during this time with the movement here was less the sight of time, but the sound of time. Because you started to have monasteries and parish church bells that would summon people at different times of the day to prayer and to services. And it was within the confines of Christian monasteries that you have some pretty significant developments in relation to what we call clock time and in the West. But originally, this, this clock was used with the bells to guide the liturgy in the sense of calling people throughout their day back to God. But then ultimately, it was the liturgy that governed the day, not the clocks. But as you know, it doesn't take long for clocks to leave the monasteries and even the town square. They spread, they become more common. You eventually start to put them in watches. And in many ways start to shape human experience in ways we don't tend to appreciate. So that in 1944, a very famous essay is written by George Woodcock. The, the, the essay is called The Tyranny of the Clock. The Tyranny of the Clock in 1944. And he argued, and lots of people have supported him, he actually argued that the thing that most distinguished the modern Western world, the modern world as he was experiencing it in 1944, from previous times, both in the West and in the East, he said, was this conception of clock time. That is what one of the main things that distinguished our time in 1944 from all those other times. Because with clock time, you start to get what we call non-contextual understandings of time. That becomes, I want to make sure you're getting this, where, where we're going. Like, non-contextual time is when it's 11 o'clock at night and you have an assignment due and you turn on the light because you have electricity and you open your laptop and it stares at you and you think, I have an hour of work to do and I have an hour, let's do it. Because every hour is the same. 
And it doesn't matter what your body chemistry is doing. It doesn't matter your blood sugar level. It doesn't matter if your roommate has COVID next door. It doesn't matter if you're angry at your girlfriend. It doesn't matter. You've got an hour. Do it. Context stops being significant. So go, you don't even have to go to the ancient world to see some of these differences to help appreciate them. Take, for example, a, a different relationship to time. Take, for example, the work of Nwaka Egbilum. He's an African scholar, and he, he has uh, this Oxford University Press uh, uh, treatment of time where he's trying to help non-Westerners who are going to go live in different countries in Africa. And there's, there's a lot of cultural differences in Africa, a lot of different countries, so we don't want to make it all the same. But even amidst all of that diversity, he comes up with eight characteristics that he says are fairly distinct there, and one of them is what he distinguishes between clock time in the West and ritual time. Ritual time. And in that way, the idea is it's more, it's more reminiscent probably of ancient Israel than of New York City because events, rather than timepieces, are what would regulate, he argued, the African accounts of time. And so Egbilum, he argues, you know, what happens in a, in, a, in a village, for example, is people will come to a meeting and stay as long as the meeting needs to be. When there's a dance exhibition, people will come, and as long as it's good, they'll stay. And as long as it's, when it stops being good, they leave. It can be really long, really short. It's the event that governs the time. In one sentence, he says, time, in essence, is life celebrated. Time is life celebrated. We might just say life lived. Now, those of us in the Western world, we hear this, and it's easy for us to be tempted. It can drive us crazy, this non-Western approach to time, and we will assign moral judgment to it. We will often find ourselves saying, gosh, that is so inefficient. And that inefficiency carries with it this moral failing, even when sometimes in our lives, our rush for efficiency undermines our health, our rest, our relationships. But we have a very strong moral outrage about inefficiency. And it's been argued that in Western countries, as we've been shaped more and more by clock time, what's also been connected to that is money. So that and this is not bashing on the West. I'm just trying to help us understand some of what you and I feel right now. So you've heard this quip, but you probably don't know who first said it. Time is money. You've heard that, right? I don't know if you realize that. That's not in Proverbs. That's Ben Franklin, right? It's not a biblical value, but it is most definitely an American value. Some of you want to fight right now because I said it's not a... Right? But... There's something to it, right? But, but listen to how we, including me, talk about our time. We say, don't waste time. Use time. Spend your time. The economic model governs our understanding of time. Speed and production are rewarded while being slow and inefficient are penalized. And it doesn't take a ton of imagination to imagine what the consequences of that are for people with disabilities. And Barbara Adam is a sociologist 
probably the leading sociologist of time in the world. You didn't even know there was such a thing as sociologists of time, but there are. And she's a British scholar. And I won't take you through all of her work, but at one point near the end, one of the things she argues is this combination of, of clock time and money and productivity in the end creates a situation where she says, quote, there is this compression and intensification of processes. Listen to that language. Maybe, maybe don't listen. Feel that language. Do you feel it? There is a compression and intensification of processes. So that now we in the West, including me, enjoy all of these benefits from this intensification. But we rarely recognize all of the cost and burden that corresponds with this. We live with the consequences. And our concepts of life have been reshaped by clock time. And then linked with money. And then further linked with productivity. And you end up with humans with this very interesting paradox. Think about this. For a long time, we thought it's really cool to try and make machines like humans. But now what you are feeling in your gut is we are expecting humans to be like machines. Machines need to be plugged in and occasionally serviced. But humans don't just need nutrients you need sleep you actually need laughter and you need love and most of those are inefficient does that mean humans have a moral superiority over us i think from a christian perspective we should be rethinking things now further though it's common for us to complain that we just don't have time but that's actually not really the case. And, and everything I'm going to say this morning, I'd rather have like 20 minutes to say it rather than a minute. But, and so if you want to talk more about this, I can point you to things or we, we can have lunch. But it's actually not true, right? Clock time has never, it's not changed the number of hours in a day or in a week. It hasn't changed the amount of time between sunsets. There has never the ancient world to our day, there's never been more than 168 hours in a week. But here's the thing, and how would you answer this? The, the survey that's gone out pretty consistently to Americans, where they're asked, do you work, quote-unquote, too much? What do you think we all say? Absolutely yes. But, and this really surprised me in the research. When you look at, in terms of work being actually like paid labor, when you actually you make people do time logs, which is the most accurate way to tell how people use their time, which is different than your perception, but you actually, how you use time, do you know there's actually not evidence that those who were doing paid work 50 years ago and those doing it today are working, that there's no evidence that we are working more hours on average than they did 50 years ago. Doesn't that surprise you? Doesn't feel that way. And there's a lot of reasons for this, and we can't get into all of them, but part of it is everything is now so interconnected. Our jobs, our home, our leisure, and our imaginations. We can always imagine doing more, being more, and with the wonderful technology of a laptop and of a phone, you never leave work. 
It's always with you. It's in your pocket. At any minute, you can get the bing. You get the reminder. You're ushered. And our lives feel more accelerated because you're never actually off. You're never actually done. So you might not work more hours, but your hours are spread out throughout the whole day. And you're now thinking you should also do this exercise, and you should be in this club, and you should be doing this, and you should have a house that's this big and takes this much work to it, and, 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 and. And the list has expanded. And since we're never off the clock, you and I feel that intensification. And so what we do is we get little hits. We look for little breaks throughout our day to distract us. Most often, if you're you're like me, by our phones. When you have even just a minute of silence, will you sit in it? Will you walk and just let yourself think? Can you sit in a chair and not immediately busy yourself with another to-do? It's a challenge. We avoid these moments of silence. But even if we don't work more hours than we used to, I think it's pretty fair to say we feel like we never actually rest. Because part of it is clock time and modern technology fostering us the belief that we can and should use every moment for accomplishing something. This makes, some of you know the work of Cal Newport, this makes what he calls deep work or deep thinking incredibly difficult. Right? You, you know this. How, how successful are you to say, I'm going to read a book and only read that book and concentrate on it for 45 minutes. How does that go? Or I'm going to be in this conversation and only in this conversation with this one person for 45. Like how, how, uh, how is our, I'm, I'm going to think about this problem and let myself sit with it for 45 minutes. But I don't think it's just deep work and deep thinking that's struggling. It's our deep relationships that suffer. So that now you have people going to seminars and listening to podcasts who are in order, and I get it, in order to find advice because they are finding more and more people struggle to pay attention, not for 45 minutes, but for three minutes. Can you read something for three minutes? Can you be in a conversation for three minutes without you picking up, you and I picking out our phones? What does that look like? We are, as some scholars have written, we are just chronically distracted. Now, we're going to move away from this now in a second, but I just want you to know that this is not when I say, let's give up technology. Right? The Luddite temptation is real, but technology is not inherently evil or inherently good in this way. The Gutenberg printing press was an amazing gift that allowed us to have the Bible and amazing literature and news. But it's also the very thing that allowed the dissemination of hateful speech, misinformation, and great hurt and harm. So how do we think about this and not just pretend like if we get in the ancient world or the medieval world, things will be better? That's not what we're looking for here. 
So keep all that in mind. Let's turn our attention to stress. Let's turn our attention to stress. Irish poet and priest John O'Donovan, who since died, but in one of his poems, he has this line, and it was reading this poem that actually inspired all this, this work. This is what he said. Stress is a perverted relationship to time. Think about that. That was really mm. Stress is a perverted relationship to time. When we're stressed, he's going to argue we no longer participate in time. Instead, we're driven by it, we're pushed, and we're eventually emptied by it. I love what he's saying, except I would change one word. I would substitute the word anxiety for the word stress. I would substitute the word anxiety for the word stress. Now, before I say any more, please know, and again, for the sake of time, I'm not, I am not using a clinical definition of anxiety, and nothing I'm going to be saying should in any way discourage you from getting appropriate counseling and psychologists and even medication. That's, this is more, but, but it still matters. So here's what I want you to understand about stress. Stress is a gift from God. Isn't that weird? Stress is a gift from God. Your body senses there is a problem and decides to respond. Maybe it's flight. Maybe it's fight, right? Maybe you need to avoid a difficulty. Maybe you need to confront a difficulty. But that can help you, not just in a time of war, but maybe when you're walking down a dark alley at night. It can help you, whether you're a student or a parent with lots to do. Because stress can actually activate adrenaline spikes, for example. It can make you, interestingly enough, when rightly used, it can make you run a little faster. Stress can actually give you the courage. Some of you, some of you live this. Stress can give you the courage to clear your calendar to do the things you need to do that you've been avoiding. Once we feel that stress, we realize, I can't go to that thing, I've got to do this work. It helps, stress has helped humans to save lives, to do amazing things. To be honest with you, I would never publish, any, I would never do so much of my work if it weren't for deadlines. I hate deadlines, just like you. But they force something. But here's the problem. We took a good gift stress and we made it a terrible master we took a good gift which is stress and made it a terrible master we've accumulated stresses above our ability to handle them and that plunges us into constant anxiety we have made stress a way of life and we were never designed for that you and i were never made to be on alert all the time listen to me Stress can be helpful. Stress can be helpful as long as it's realistic, episodic, and addressed. It's helpful as long as it's realistic, episodic, and addressed. Stress produces anxiety when it overloads our capacity to handle it. And anxiety, there's all this work, anxiety affects us mentally, physically, emotionally, Reducing, further reducing our ability to handle stress and thus 
make it a bigger, bigger and bigger problem. And part of what happens in our anxiety is it confuses our limits, our creaturely limits, that we can't do everything. It confuses those and starts to convince us that we're letting God down. You're letting God down because you're not being able to do everything, to keep up with the endless demands. And that often fosters self-accusation, unrealistic views of ourselves and others. It often fosters bitterness and anger and contempt. Let me put it to you differently. Anxiety fosters a distorted relationship to time. What's the challenge here? Amid this growing sense of feeling incessantly busy, always flirting with distraction, rarely honoring the rhythms of the earth and of our bodies and of relationships, if I had to define the problem with one word, it would be this. Presence. Presence. By being present, being fully engaged with God or with others in our immediate circumstances, in a world of hurry, that gets more and more difficult. You know what it means? Do you struggle to be present? And when we struggle to be present, it makes it all the more difficult fosters anxiety, to be fully present. I remember a friend of mine a couple years ago, he was at a Christmas party. He's a pastor, he's at a Christmas party. And everyone's in the living room and everything, it was really fun. And he said he had to actually go into a room all by himself, in a different part of the house, and he said, he just started saying out loud to himself, I am here, I am here, I am here. Because he found it so difficult to be present where he was. Can you relate? Are you present with your friends when you're with your friends? Are you present with the class when you're in class? I'm not... Psychologists and life coaches understand this. There's this rise in the industry of mindfulness and other things. And just so you know, I think a lot of those techniques are super helpful. I find breathing techniques super helpful. But I think we have a theological issue here that's beyond those things. And that's what I want to spend the last couple minutes on. What if I told you, what if I told you that the struggle with feeling endlessly exhausted and anxious could be greatly helped by you and I learning to fear the Lord? Didn't expect that one, did you? What if learning to fear the Lord could be helpful? It sounds strange, doesn't it? This archaic phrase, the fear of the Lord. This ancient wisdom that could transform how we live even in our clock-driven technological age with frenetic lives. Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann, writing in the 1960s, he, he has this treatment of secularism and, but I'll just tell you the, the conclusion he reaches, which I think is super interesting. He argued that secularism is, quote, a negation of worship. Secularism is a negation of worship. It changes our view of what it means to be human. Listen to this. He says, it is the negation of man as a worshiping being, as homo adorans, the one for whom worship, do you believe this is essential to being human? The one for whom worship 
is the essential act which both posits his humanity and fulfills it. Put differently, humans were made for communion with the triune God. And in the secular age, it's not that everyone denies God exists. They just downplay him. It's not that, that everyone denies worship. But it's not central. And as Christians, we have often fallen into this, into secularism. We've fallen into secularism not because we use electricity, not because we buy iPhones, but because we have reduced worship to a single experience. Right, think about this. What is worship? Maybe we say, well, that's, well, that's what happens in an hour or two on Sunday. But let me be honest with you, I think even that's being too generous. If you ask the average evangelical, if you ask you and I most often, if you ask someone, hey, how was church today? You'll get something like this often. The worship was great, but the sermon was boring, and the offering made me uncomfortable. Do you see what's happened? Listen to how you use the language too. By worship, what are we actually just talking about? The singing. And part of that, I think, makes sense because in our singing, it engages us in more holistic ways, in our mind, our affections, in our bodies. And so often when we're singing, this is partly why you love it, in your singing of praise, even if it's just for a few moments, you feel reconnected to God. You feel like you can imagine He's present. You can imagine he's actually there. But when the singing ends, a few minutes later, we go back to our secular lives, even as we sit in the pew. Because even for us, the world has become disenchanted. We live the majority of our time assuming God's absence rather than his presence. We're not attuned to his presence. And you know what the answer is to the tyranny of time and this pool of suffocating secularism? It's worship. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord reconnects worship with the rest of our lives. In the, in the wisdom literature, the fear of the Lord is often contrasted with the wise and the foolish. In, in, in the Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, the, the fool is the one who denies God's presence. The wise person who, is the one who lives in light of it. As later Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Are you thirsty? The fear of the Lord is what gives you eyes to recognize he is always with you. Living in the fear of the Lord is not so much about being scared, although occasionally that's true. But about recognizing God's real presence all about us. From our rising to our lying down, from our food to our sexual encounters, from the classroom to the dormitory, from our laughter to our intellectual burdens. Here's the end. God's presence is meant to be the context for our lives. God's presence is the context of our lives for our living in harmony with time. Bruce Waltke, talking about the fear of the Lord, says it moves at both the rational and the non-rational levels, both otherness and intimacy, both awe and wonder, both reverence and trust. Here's the point. If God is with us always, we go to him not with cliches or prepackaged answers. We go to him to wrestle and to rest. 
to cry and to laugh, to lay our concerns and to discover hope. Beloved, the fear of the Lord is a lifestyle. It's the true context of every moment. The fear of the Lord, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what historical moment you're in, the fear of the Lord is what will help you return to a healthy relationship to time. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear His presence. Let's pray. Father, we can't just try harder. We can't just be better at time management. We need the gift of eyes and ears. Not just to come to faith, but to live lives of faith. Be with the one who listens and the one who speaks each word. Help us to appreciate and live in the great gift of your presence.